mood of the story that is to follow, right? That's the purpose of those words. And the words, a dark and stormy night, is meant to communicate a very specific mood and tone. And as I'm sure you are well aware, that, that tone is not meant to be cheerful or hopeful. But rather, it's supposed to be the opposite. It gives the scene a, a bleak and dreary atmosphere. An atmosphere of, of looming dread and unease that is supposed to upend your whole sense of security. Well, Mark the author of this particular gospel that we're studying could have easily chosen to begin this passage that we're looking at today with those words. With the words, it was a dark and stormy night. Because as we will see, those, those words ring true in a factual sense, but also in a tonal sense. Because as we will see, it is dread and fear that would flood into the hearts and to the minds of the disciples. But it is in this dark and stormy night that the Lord Jesus would reveal key truths about who he is and what the Christian life is to look like. And it is these truths that we want to learn ourselves today. But first, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here together, to study your word, to sing your praises. And so, Father, I pray, God, that your spirit guides us through this amazing account of your son. God, I pray, Lord, that you remove me out of the equation and that your spirit speaks loudly to the hearts that are here this morning. And Father, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so as we begin this account of Jesus and his disciples getting caught up in the storm, as they're beginning to make their way across the Sea of Galilee, if you look carefully at this passage, you may notice something that is somewhat unusual about it, something that, that kind of separates it away from many of the other accounts that you find in Mark. Because you see, the hallmark of the gospel of Mark is its brevity, is the, the shortness of it, the shortness in which he writes the various accounts of Jesus. He doesn't waste any time fluffing out stories or adding any details that are not absolutely necessary. However, Mark's telling of the story of Jesus and the disciples in the storm is notably different. It's longer than nearly any other story in this book. And now, remember, Mark himself was not an eyewitness to anything written in this gospel. Mark is essentially the Apostle Peter's stenographer as he recounts uh, to Mark his experiences that he had with Jesus. And so what many biblical scholars believe, and, and what I agree with, is that the reason this account gets so much special attention is that this moment for Peter was of special importance to him. This moment in the storm. This more than any other moments that he had with Jesus, save the resurrection of Jesus, changed everything for Peter. It changed everything. 
It changed the very way in which he saw, in the way that which he perceived Jesus and who he was. So it is likely that Peter is taking his time here in telling Mark this story and perhaps even implores Mark to add in more detail than Mark is typically known for. And so if Peter and Mark are taking extra care to to fully sketch out this account of the storm, that's a clue for us. It's a clue for us, a clue that there is something extraordinary going on in this account, and it is worth our time to explore it in as much detail as we have time for this morning. But even so, I encourage you to study it even more as you go home and as you go about your week. Because, because friends, there is so much gold to be mined from this passage. So, so please, study it more. This is a fantastic passage. Now, there's one more thing that I want to discuss before we really dive into this story, before we really start dissecting it. You see, I want to dispel a misconception that is, that is often associated with this account of Jesus calming the storm. And the misconception is that the point of this story, the main thrust of this story, which is found in Matthew 8 and Luke 8 as well, is that since Jesus calmed the storm, storm on the Sea of Galilee, He will therefore calm all of the storms in my life, in this lifetime, and sometimes immediately. But that's the, that's the popular reading of this passage. That's the, that's the pop theology reading of this passage. But it's also the incorrect reading of this passage. Though it is true that Jesus is the only one that can calm any storm that we come up against in this life. Friends, that is, that is not the main point of this passage. And in fact, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for us to read it in that manner for two reasons. The first being that we would just simply be in error in our interpretation of this passage. And friends, we we worship a God of truth, don't we? A God of truth. And Jesus calls himself the truth in John 14, 6. And therefore, we we should seek the truth in Scripture above all else, not simply what we want to be there. We do not want to read into Scripture something that's not there. That's, that's what's called a bad hermeneutic, a bad interpretive principle, a bad way of reading the Bible. And secondly, it is dangerous because that error could actually result in a damage to our faith. The storm calmed immediately when Jesus said the words of command in verse 39, right? So what do we do when the storms of our own life are not immediately calmed when we pray? If we believe that Jesus Jesus promises us in this passage that He will immediately, immediately rescue us from every bad situation we come to, and yet that doesn't happen, what sort of damage will that do to our faith? So interpreting this passage this way, it creates a shallow faith. A faith that is dependent solely on your current circumstances. A faith that, as Ephesians 4.14 says, can be tossed to and fro by the waves. That is the danger of misunderstanding this passage. 
And so we don't want to waste our time. We don't want to waste our time with a misunderstanding that, that sure, looks, looks great on a bumper sticker, looks great on a t-shirt, but makes shipwreck of our faith. So let's discover what God truly is teaching us about himself in this story. Now let's begin by looking at the first few verses. So if you have your Bibles with you, read with me verses 35 through 37. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, meaning the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So, after Jesus had a long and arduous day of, of teaching and preaching, he decides it is time for, for he and his disciples to, to set out across the Sea of Galilee, to get away from all of these, these people, all these throngs of people that had begun to crowd around him. And of course, the disciples obeyed, and they took Jesus into their boat, and they began to make their way across the Sea of Galilee, and everything was, was totally fine. But as they were sailing, a great tempest arose. A great storm came about and water began to come over the side of the boat. And it would have, it would have been a horrific experience. It would have been terrifying. And now I know, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Pastor Michael, please, please tell us the geographical makeup of the Sea of Galilee and, and if the storms such as this were, were a normal occurrence. I know that's exactly what you're thinking because that's what I thought when I read this. First thing that came to my mind was the geographical makeup of the Sea of Galilee. Well, don't you fear because I'm going to tell you. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 7 miles wide. And surrounded by these, by these large hills and, and these mountains. And when the cold air would come down from the mountains and meet with the warm air from the surface of the sea, it can create these type of windstorms that would, that would seemingly come out of nowhere. They would happen suddenly. In fact, this area was and is historically known for these types of, of sudden and violent storms. Though they, they, didn't, or they were less likely to happen during the evening. But another thing that you must remember is that at least four, at least four of the disciples that are on the boat with Jesus are fishermen. They're fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have been well aware that these type of storms were common. And they had probably been out fishing when, when one kind of suddenly came up. And they more than likely would have had experience with navigating to safety in storms sort of like this. But it does seem that this storm was different. It wasn't like any of the other storms. This storm was so great and so terrible that even our experienced fishermen friends were horrified. They were gripped by fear. Even their, even their hearts were filled with despair once the waves of the sea began to pour into the boat. Now, there's something else that I want you to notice about this particular situation that these disciples were in. 
Notice that they were not in the middle of this storm out of their disobedience. They were not in the middle of this storm because of their disobedience. Did you notice that? In fact, the exact opposite was true. They were being obedient. They were, they were listening and acting upon the commands of Jesus. They, they got into the boat that Jesus wanted them to get into. They started heading in the direction that Jesus chose for them to go. It was listening and obeying the voice of Jesus that led them into the storm. Isn't that incredible? Not something you would think about uh, hearing from Scripture. But there's a powerful truth to be learned in this. Friends, the call to the Christian life is not a call to comfort. The call of Jesus is not always the call to have your cancer miraculously cured. The call of Christ is not always to have all of your family woes immediately mended. And sometimes the call of Jesus is a call into a storm. I, uh, I once asked a girl who sat behind me in a uh, New Testament class in college if, if it was hard for her being away from home. It's not you, I'm sorry. But it's, uh, we did meet at Bible college. Uh, anyway, let's not make this more awkward than I've already made it. Uh, but I asked her if it was hard for her to be away from home for the first time, and she said, in some ways, yes, it was difficult, but in some ways, she was just thankful to have a place to go. That's not the answer I was expecting, and so I, I asked her what she meant by that, and she told me that, that she had become a Christian less than two years before uh, she was sitting in this class. And once she had told her parents, who were not Christians, that she had placed her faith in Christ, they kicked her out. Not only that, but they refused to acknowledge her as their daughter. So the call of Jesus in her life is not a call to a life without storms. Now this cuts completely against the grain of the modern gospel that we hear in a lot of churches today. It cuts completely against the grain of the modern health and wealth gospel, also called the prosperity gospel, also called the name it, claim it gospel. A, a false gospel that tells you that being a Christian means living your best life here and now. Meaning that what God truly wants for you is to never suffer, to never experience any illness, never experience financial poverty, and that God would never, never lead you into the middle of a storm. In fact, God's main concern for you is your material well-being. And not only that, but your material well-being is directly tied to your spiritual well-being. If you are suffering in any way, whether it be your health, whether it be in your relationships or your finances, it's all due to your lack of faith and or sinfulness. But, but the closer you are to God well, the less gray your clouds will be. But friends, this is a, a false gospel. It is a false gospel. It's a damnable gospel in the words of Galatians 1. A gospel that breeds a shallow faith and has no grounding in Scripture whatsoever. 
And there are famous peddlers of this and other false gospels. Wolves in sheep's clothing, such as Joel Olstein or Creflo Dollar, or Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, and many others. And yes, I am naming names because you need to be aware of who they are and the lies that they want to spread to you about what the Christian life is. But I implore you to not listen to them. And listen instead to the witness of Scripture. Listen to what God's Word tells us that following Jesus entails. Luke 9.23 And Jesus said to all, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is an instrument of suffering and death, by the way, but let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, so therefore anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test as if something strange were happening to you. And this list goes on and on. Friends, following Jesus is not a call to safety in this life. But friends, let me tell you this. It is far better to be led by Jesus into the middle of a storm than it is to be outside of the storm without Him. Why? Because what He works in us through those storms is far greater, is far superior than if we had never gone through it at all. J.C. Ryle says this, But he, meaning Jesus, has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. What what a statement is that? He loves us too much to protect us from storms of affliction. Man, what a statement. Ryle goes on. He says, by affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never have learned. By affliction, He shows us our emptiness and weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. He weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. And in the resurrection morning, when Christ comes again, we shall say, it is good for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted. And we shall thank God for every storm. Wow. Wow. And this isn't, this isn't just J.C. Ryle's wishful thinking. This is the promise of God's Word. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 5.3-5, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. 
We rejoice in our storms, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise God. Praise God. You see, we live in a fallen and broken world because of the sinfulness of man. Suffering comes to us all in one way or another. And becoming a Christian doesn't lighten that load of suffering, but it increases it because it puts you at odds with the world that has set itself against God. But Jesus loves you enough. He loves you enough to not shield you from every ounce of suffering you may face. But instead, He uses it for His glory and your edification for your sanctification. He uses it to bring about a spiritual transformation in your heart that would not otherwise have happened. He uses the storms of your life to, to strengthen your dependency on Him, to build your godly character, and to draw you into, into stronger and more resilient faith in Him, and to create in you a heart that longs to be with Him, because you know the truth of Romans 8, 18. That the suffering that you experience now in the dark and stormy night that you may be in is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits you in the life to come. And so even more wondrously, Jesus uses those storms to reveal himself to you in a deeper and more meaningful way, which is our second point of truth. You see, because of this event on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples came to understand the identity of Jesus in a far deeper way than if the storm had never happened. Read with me again verses 37 in the first sentence in verse 38. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. For the first five, four or five years of our marriage, my wife Kayla and I were constantly on airplanes going between Germany and Ireland and the U.S. And, and no matter how many times I flew, I just could not get over my fear of flying. In fact, the more I flew, the more afraid I was because I knew like if you fly once, the, the statistic of you crashing, it's not, it's not big. You know, you're probably not going to crash, but the more you fly, you know, more of the chance are going to be one of those statistics. And every bump... Every slight jostle from turbulence had me convinced we were going down. It was just a fact. We were going to die. But while I was gripping the armrest so tightly that the, the blood was draining from my knuckles, what do, I, what do I look over to see? Kayla, perfectly sound asleep. So, so peaceful, just serenity written all over her face without a care in the world. It was disgusting. And that's, that's precisely what's, what's going on here in this boat with Jesus and his disciples. While they were panicking and fearing that death was, was knocking at their door, Jesus was, was sleeping 
peacefully in the back of the boat. And on a cushion, no less. And this, this hardly seemed like a time for sleeping, right? And so why was Jesus asleep? Why was he sleeping so peacefully in the boat while this storm was raging on around him? Well, the answer is simple. He was exhausted. He was exhausted. You see, here we are reminded of the true humanity of Jesus. He had spent the entire day surrounded by people and his disciples teaching and preaching without a moment's rest. And so he was, he was tired. So as soon as he stepped into the boat, his, his truly human body and mind gave way to that exhaustion and he fell asleep. But eventually, the much-needed rest of Jesus was disturbed by his disciples. Fear had overtook them. And they went to Jesus and woke him, saying in verse 38, Teacher, do you, do you not care that we are perishing? And John Calvin, he actually notes the absurdity of this question, how silly this question actually is. They're saying, Jesus, here we are, about to drown, and you're just, you're just lying there, sleep." asleep don't you don't you care about us don't you don't you love us ah but friends if 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 only they knew if only they knew that just a little over 30 short years before jesus was enjoying perfect fellowship with the father and the holy spirit he was unhindered by human flesh he was untouched by exhaustion or hunger, or thirst. He was surrounded by his angels receiving their praise, and yet he stepped out of heaven so that he could die on the cross for them. This group of men who were caught in the grips of fear by the storm. But before we're too hard on the disciples here, as the uh, pastor Alistair Begg points out, we too can be all too familiar with this sort of question. The disciples began to doubt the word given to them by Jesus, that they should cross the sea. Not only that, but they probably even began to, to uh, believe that it was a mistake to follow Jesus in the first place, because if they didn't listen to him, if they didn't follow him, they wouldn't be in this predicament. And likewise, when we are in the midst of a storm in our own life and we pray for deliverance, we too can begin to doubt God's Word. We can begin to doubt the promises that He has made to us. The promises that He made to us in regards to the good purposes of the suffering that we're facing. All of those promises that we read just minutes ago. But just as the disciples were slipping into, into doubt and dread, Jesus taught them another remarkable lesson that they would never forget. A lesson that would change their very understanding of who Jesus is. And that lesson is this. In every storm is the opportunity to see afresh and be filled with awe and wonder at the might, majesty, and identity of Jesus, the Son of God. Because not only does this account show us the true humanity of Jesus, it displays to us His true divinity and power. Read verse 39 and 41 with me. 
It says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the winds ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So the sleeping Jesus rises. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and knowing the voice of their creator, they are brought to peace. The winds immediately die down. The waves of the sea turn to, smooth, turn to, to be smooth as glass, and all the perceived power and terror of the storm was brought to nothing, brought to nothing by the command of Jesus. And when Jesus turned to them and said, Why are you still so afraid? And have you still no faith? What Jesus is saying is, is that you have walked alongside of me. My disciples, you have seen me perform miracle after miracle. You've, you've heard my teaching. And yet you still do not know who I truly am. And instead of being filled with relief, at the calming of the storm, the disciples, verse 41 says, were filled with an even greater fear than they, than they had during the storm. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that they were filled with even more fear? That they were more terrified of the one who calmed the storm than they were of the storm itself? Why? Why? Why would they be filled with fear and not relief? Well, the answer is because they were good Jewish men. They were good Jewish men, and as good Jewish men knew or would know, they would be, they would be well acquainted with the Old Testament writings found in Psalms 89.9 or Psalm 29 or the opening chapters of Genesis, and they would know, they would know that the authority to control nature itself resided solely in the domain of God himself. And so they marveled and they were afraid because they realized that they, that they no longer had a category to place Jesus in. They realized that there was, there was no other kind of being like Jesus. And it was in that moment that they realized that God, that Yahweh himself, was in the boat with them. And he used that ferocious tempest to reveal himself. And compared to the one who stood before them, the storm seemed no more than just a, a puff of wind. And brothers and sisters, that, that is the ultimate point of this passage. That is the point of this passage. It is not that God promises to calm every storm in your life, in this lifetime. The point is that Jesus is God. Is that He is Yahweh. And when we realize that point, it makes His question to the disciples make, make a little bit more sense. Why are you afraid of this storm? Do you still have no faith? Do you know who is in the boat with you? Do you not know that even in the middle of the darkest storm, I am still God? I am still in control. And no plan of mine that I have for you can be thwarted by nature, 
by disease, by man, or by hell itself. So why are you afraid? You see, the fear of the disciples is actually a sinful fear. And please hear me with grace when I say that, because it is a, it's a kind of fear that, that we all experience from time to time. Now, it is not wrong, or it was not wrong, for them to fear the storm itself, just as it wouldn't be wrong or sinful for you to, to fear a tsunami or be afraid of a, of a snake or a spider. So don't hear me say that, that if you are ever afraid, that you are being sinful. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, and the reason why I do say that the disciples' fear was a sinful fear, was because they allowed their fear to cause them to doubt Jesus' word. Remember what they said, Jesus, do you even care about us? You see, in that moment, their fear caused them to have more faith in the storm to destroy them than faith in Jesus to carry them through, no matter, no matter what the outcome would be. And it is that kind of fear that it's at the root of our own doubts in Jesus when we are going through trials and tribulations of all kinds, when we feel as if He is not there or simply doesn't care. But in verse 41, the disciples' sinful and doubt-filled fear gave way to a good kind of fear, the right kind of fear, a fear of the Lord Jesus. You see, that is the kind of fear that we should seek in all of life's circumstances, in all of the storms that come our way. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of Him. And Jesus says in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who could kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The word that is used for fear in these passages have, have a double meaning. The first is terror, what we kind of typically think of when we say fear. But the other is reverence or awe. So friends, the, the whole counsel of Scripture teaches us that we should have no fear, that we should have no reverence, we should have no awe for the things or the people in this world that are set against us, that seek to destroy us. Those things, friends, are not worthy of your fear. They're not worthy of your fear. But we are to have a good and right fear, reverence and awe in the Lord. A true fear, because He is the Lord of the universe. A fear of Him, because He is thrice holy. He is morally perfect in every way, and He is just, and He is righteous, and we are not. Reverence and awe, because though we deserve His wrath, He extends to us grace. Grace. 
reverence and awe because this God-man Jesus loved us enough to die a horrible and humiliating death on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins and spend an eternity enjoying his presence. Reverence and awe because even when fear leads us to doubt, he lovingly and graciously reminds us of that he is, or reminds us of who he is and the great love that he has for us. Friends, if we, if we truly fear the Lord, if we truly fear him, then we have nothing else in this world to be afraid of. Nothing. So as I begin to close this sermon, in those storms that have or will come your way. I want to ask you, where will you place your fear? Where will you place your fear? In the waves, which makes us anxious and depressed and filled with doubt? Or will you place your fear in the Lord of the waves, who leads us to worship and perseverance in our most difficult trials? Friends, are you more afraid of the storm? Or have you learned the good fear that silences all others? Brothers and sisters, I'm going to read a passage from Romans, which will also serve as my, uh, my closing prayer. And as I read it, I want you to be thinking and pondering every storm, every trial, every period of suffering that you are either in or have been in or dread may come your way. I want you to have those storms in your mind. And I want you to take this passage and I want you to ask for the Holy Spirit to engrave it on your hearts. Because, because friends, this is why. This passage is why we can have faith in our Savior even if the storm that He sovereignly has us in looks like cancer or looks like the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or whether it be divorce or estranged family members or a miscarriage or depression or anxiety or persecution. This passage is why even in the midst of the most violent storms, we can safely anchor ourselves to the rock of our salvation. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And friends, that's you. If you're a believer, that's you. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But friends, no. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we have no reason to fear. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.